On this episode of Gray Man Hiding in Plain Sight, I'm going to be sharing with you some real-world stories and training simulations that I experienced in the world of strategic debriefing, interrogation, running sources, and having recruited assets. While I cannot clarify which stories are real-world events and which ones are training scenarios, what I can tell you is all the training scenarios are based on real-world events within a few years of when I experienced them. And all the ones that are actual events, I've gone through taking notes and made sure I've change names and situations to ensure those remain protected as they need to be. Not much effort was needed in that because I'm only going to be pulling part of the stories out to explain to you how I built rapport, what we were thinking, how we went out of certain situation, how we convinced people to talk to us, what we did, how we lied to them, manipulated them, convinced them to work with us. Why is this important to the Gray Man concept? What this is going to do is give you some examples and experiences of what it's like working with people you don't know and trying to convince them to do what you need in order to get some result you're looking for while remaining as anonymous as possible to these individuals. I believe you will find this beneficial in the gray man concept, and if not, that's okay. Just hold on and listen for the pure entertainment value as this will be our last entry in this series where I take the ending of interrogation and some pre-subjects we put together and just share some experiences I've had. And then in our next episodes, we're going to transition into more technical skills that you can actually apply every day that go a little beyond theory and a little more hands-on action. That's happening right here on Gray Man Hiding in Plain Sight. This is episode 13 of Gray Man Hiding in Plain Sight. I thought it'd be good to tie up the last few episodes, especially with some of the stories and techniques, share with you some things that have happened to me since I've done all the different roles in human intelligence perhaps you'll just get a good story out of it or you'll see some parallels and understand how persuasion works, how we had to think things through, work together as a team, what ideas we had, the different struggles, successes and failures. At least it'll be for a good story, but it'll give you an idea of what the life's really like when it comes to communicating with people. So this, again, is only part of the gray man concept, but it's a good aspect for understanding what it's like to interact with people because your behavior is the biggest thing that's going to get you somewhere. There are situations where we had to be other people, so it was part of the idea of being gray, and there's some situations where you're actually yourself, regardless of whether or not the person you talk to believes that or not. We all have different challenges, so my biggest one is a stutter. You might have heard things that sound like I either am trying too hard or didn't practice well enough or skipped over words in some of these recordings, but I actually have a stutter that comes from some injuries that I have. And it's uh, very irritating even now doing this podcast because sometimes I spend way too much time around to record. And there's a good example of it right there if you just listen to that again. Sometimes I spend way too much time trying to re-record areas to make it sound smooth because it bothers me and irritates me, whereas to some people it doesn't. But it's uh, one of the worst things that I think happened to me in the military, although there's things for most people would be way worse. It's the one thing that affects me every day that really gets me. In fact, the longer I talk or if I go a while without talking to anybody and then I have to have a long conversation, it comes out even more. So most of the time it comes out later in the day. And it's actually been a hindrance and an issue, especially in interrogation. The only other issue I really experienced was just my physical size. I'm a pretty large man. Typically, I only ran into that issue when I was interrogating, but I took steps to mitigate that as much as I could, but it didn't always work. It was the same idea as a couple of my female interrogators were exceptionally short for a woman. And that being a culture that didn't think much of women, it also made it difficult for them, but they learned how to overcome it as well. I actually learned from them to apply to myself when it was just an issue of physical size. I learned very early on that any illusions I had about what I was doing was pretty inaccurate. In fact, most people who 
think they know what it's like or what it would be like to have my job or to be me had some similar thoughts and feelings that I did and I dispelled them pretty quickly. I think this is an example of a job where you have to really be into it, really want to do it and find it exciting, which there's only a few people that do. A lot of people don't make it or drop out just because it's so boring and tedious and very difficult. The training straight up sucks because you spend hours and hours watching PowerPoint slides, going through role-playing exercises. So it only gets, I'd say, exciting or entertaining when you get those few special classes that last a few days for a few weeks. Whereas going through six-month-long training courses are very demanding and they can be mentally exhausting, physically exhausting, or both. And there's just a lot of hours of sitting there doing 14, 15 hour days, going through exercises and writing paperwork. It's just something you really got to want to do. I think like any job, when you get into the real world side of it, once you get out of a training environment, you find out what it's more like, where it's different, where it's harder, where it's easier. But the one thing I wasn't prepared for was the increase in paperwork. There's a lot of paperwork you have to write. It could be dozens of pages in some situations. Of all the different jobs, the one I found that I enjoyed the most was strategic debriefing. So debriefing to understand what it is, is the situation I discussed in a previous episode that's kind of a very short explanation without breaking any rules of describing it. But it has to do with people that are traveling to locations that may be exposed to information you're looking for, and you go and request to speak with them after the fact to see if they'll talk to you, and that's about all you can do. You can't really give them any idea of where they're going to be, what's important, what you're looking for, because you want to protect them. They're not trained. You can't legally tell them what to do, and you don't want them to go and try to do things. You just want them to do their normal, whatever they're doing, and then talk to them afterwards in order to get that information. The reason I find it the most fun is you never know what your assignment's going to be, and you have to do a lot of research where you become an expert very quickly in some finite field that usually takes years of study. And when I say you become an expert, what I mean is you usually get a couple of days or longer to put time and effort into a situation, which could be a lot more days if you talk to this source over a matter of months, where you become more of an expert to the common person, but nowhere near the person you're talking to. And you need to have that knowledge and understanding so you don't sound like an idiot. You want them to talk to you and you don't want to irritate them where you're spending most of your time trying to understand words and ideas and concepts you want to have a general base knowledge of that so that you can ask the appropriate questions the other thing too is if you don't understand something you don't know what questions to ask a good example is this there was a time i had to talk to a naval officer who was very senior who traveled in one of the naval fleets in some part of the world this individual spent a lot of time with uh, his children and family where they would travel to different areas in his theater so his kid was homeschooled so if he was studying something to do with a culture in that area they would actually take their vacation time and let the kid experience it which i thought was really cool and this guy was going to be in a situation where he was going to be around people that had ongoing naval development programs so as simple as people think it may be to translate branches of the military that only comes to like respect um, basic positions how you stand how you talk to people that's pretty universal And everything else is way different. Plus, in this situation, this guy was going to have a good idea who I was because I was going to tell him. And even though he didn't know my rank, he'd have a good enough idea to know that he significantly outranked me. So I also had to maintain a sense of military bearing away from the side of what my job was in order to not cause any problems. Which really speaks to knowing as much as you can about the individual you're going to talk to and how you can make that situation easier or harder. And if you don't know, you're most likely going to screw it up. My mission was to learn about specific naval weapons development on a type of naval warship. 
which I knew nothing about. I didn't even completely understand all the Navy ranks. And I only had a few days to prepare for this where I had to not only learn how the Navy worked, I had to understand things like propulsion, types of engines, weapon systems, tons of naval terminology for not only the U.S. Navy, but the targeted country that we were collecting on. Now, this is a lot more difficult than some people think because you want to ask questions in a logical order. And I'm not much of a mechanical guy, so this made it even more difficult. I had to be able to ask questions that made sense in a proper order without jumping around too much because that could be irritating. I unintentionally made a lot of assumptions about this situation. I had learned enough and felt competent enough talking to other people that I thought my general knowledge of naval systems was going to suffice. I also believed that talking to this person of this rank was going to cause potential problems, and I spent a lot of time preparing for that, which is where kind of the shock came in after the fact. Just because we both had a military background, I had zero issues with rapport and getting this guy to talk. It was very, very simple and easy, and I was thankful for that because I could fall back on it a lot when I stumbled because my knowledge was nowhere near good enough. I had a difficult time trying to get the information, trying to stay logical, and I kept going back to rapport building so much that he noticed it. Thankfully, because we were both Americans, he wanted to help me through this process, and although I couldn't tell him specifically what I was looking for, he was able to kind of coach and teach me how to um, ask certain questions, what would make more sense, what wasn't. I was very grateful for that. The thing is, you can actually do that as part of the approach techniques and rapport building. You have like the student-teacher relationship, and that's kind of how it worked out. It was just completely unintentional. So while that's kind of a limited story that to some might seem kind of uneventful, it speaks a lot to the assumptions we make that we may not realize our biases how well we prepare for things and how we talk to people and what we can fall back on, what works, what doesn't work type situation. Another situation I had in debriefing actually is a good example of how success on the job and knowledge of something you learn can actually scare somebody and get them to run away to where you have to tone it down a little bit, even though you're doing really well. There was a person who was a college professor with certain areas of expertise in the world of computers who with a team of people was going to a country that was setting up their first internet system. It was a situation where I was like, this shouldn't be hard to learn. I'm not much of a tech guy, but I do enjoy the internet. Therefore, I must know everything about it. And I realized that was probably something stupid to think. And then I spent a lot of time learning about servers and security and how networks are set up. I had a lot of friends who worked in that field that actually got my hands on some hardware. I set up some uh, intranets and some networks, did some own stuff at my house, and they were able to teach me a lot about it. I also had the benefit of having some extensive knowledge about this existing country's finances, their infrastructure, how their government worked, and some other factors that would tie in as well as just how they did law enforcement. And a lot of the mission was about how it was set up, how was security set up, do they have any switches in there, switches being a term for like just turning the internet off or turning off stuff from other countries, just like a lot of countries have done. I'm sure you've seen on the news some countries shuts off Twitter or YouTube. And there was things about like, Who's going to have access to it? How are they paying for it? What was the benefit? Who they're working for? Who they're working with, etc. So everything was going pretty well, and I actually had a lot more information than I knew what to do with, and I realized there was going to be a lot of report writing, but a lot of people were going to be happy, which they were. But the problem I ran into was for what we were targeting and information and what I had studied, which I had a couple weeks to prepare, I had enough knowledge and information that it kind of intimidated this guy. It got to the point where he was pretty sure I didn't work for any type of agency and that I, in fact, was committing corporate espionage or spying on him or trying to do something with a corporation to get a bid on the job or 
something along those lines to the point where he didn't want to talk to anymore and he wanted to report me to some people, which did happen until we were able to clear it up. But it made a huge issue out of nothing to where I had to make it known that I was there and what I was doing and it became a huge problem that almost got on the news. So again, a short story, but it speaks to the fact that don't get too overzealous if you're being successful talking to somebody. Look for the signs that they're starting to get intimidated by your knowledge or to the point of being so good at what you're doing that they think you're something else. And that can be a hindrance, and that definitely makes it to where you can be either exposed, even though that isn't meant in a bad way, or kind of had a spotlight on you when that's not your intention. So I had a guy I was interrogating. We had a situation in Iraq where these two guys get arrested. So they get stopped at a checkpoint going into a new area, basically a new tribal area where we had uh, military police, that type of thing going on. So the guy had a uh, kind of like a like the old Datsun pickups, essentially, um, just a standard two-wheel drive, really beat up kind of farmer's truck. And he was a pretty dirty guy. He looked like the common farmer, didn't have very many clean clothes, you know, kind of ratty, clearly didn't have money. His passenger was very well-dressed, very well-spoken, and clearly had money. They got brought in as detainees to be interrogated. The reason they were stopped was they had 55-gallon drums in the back of their truck, which when we saw them at the time, we searched them. And inside there, we found weapons and explosives. They had gone somewhere and got a cache and were transporting it to this area. So we were like, all right, we got to figure out who these guys are, who's in charge, where the cache is, who's it's for, the routes they're taking, why, all kinds of different information. So we're ready to go. After initially screening these individuals, it came that the guy was well-dressed and what little speaking he did was very well-spoken. Had no interest in talking to us. He just kind of would sit there kind of chill and relax, stare at the floor, maybe look at us. But he was kind of going with the silent approach and he had no interest in talking to us. It was very difficult just to get the rapport going and get him talking about anything. Although we were able to get some words out of him, just asking for things like if he wants water, do you want a cigarette? You know, these types of things. Did you get checked by a doctor? And he gave us short, simple answers. And using an interpreter we had, he used to be a college professor, based on the way he was speaking, we determined that he was probably from money, not just because of his dress, but how he spoke. He was intelligent, likely educated, and could kind of narrow down that the area which they're going makes sense because using the types of words and slang he was using, he was likely from that area. Now, the dirty guy was a little different. He wouldn't stop talking. In fact, he was scared shitless, so fear up was definitely not going to work on him. We had to calm this guy down. And the thing about him was, is he just kept going on and on about, he didn't know what was in there. He's completely innocent. He was just hired to drive this guy and pick up some stuff. He didn't know people transported weapons in those containers. He was very forthright, kind of too zealous with the information to every question about his denial, which told us he was not only scared, but he likely did know something. His body language shown that he was very scared. He wasn't sure what was going to happen. And he was more scared of the guy in the other room that had been caught with him than he was of being in American custody. Once we were a few hours in and realized how scared he was of the other guy, we were pretty sure the other guy was probably the guy in charge, which made sense due to him being the richer guy, being more well-dressed, and being the passenger. From this, we went and talked to the well-dressed guy who was clearly in charge, and we got him to talk a little bit to the point where he was a little more forthcoming with information, and he was like, look... Yeah, I got money. I loaned this guy money. He's my he's my cousin or brother-in-law or something like this. Something that for that culture wasn't exactly believable based on just their dress alone. And I was just going with him to help him out. I was doing the labor, which makes no sense because of how clean he was. 
and uh, he's really the guy in charge, and I'm just, I don't mean to be quiet, I'm just really upset that he did this to me. This created a problem for us because it became a series of back and forth conversations going from guy to guy, not getting too upfront with, well, this is what the other guy said, but we're kind of definitely insinuating things. And it wasn't like I was going between each guy. I was in the room at different times for both guys, but we had multiple interrogators working this. And sometimes we would be talking to both at the same time in separate rooms and just going between sharing information, trying to figure out how we were going to get these guys. Like they were going to jail. There was no question they were going to the follow on facility. They would get prosecuted and then they would get arrested and get punished and put in jail for it. There was no question about that. But our goal was to get intelligence and we needed to figure out how do we get these guys to talk? And this is a good example where interrogation in the intel world is completely different than law enforcement. Law enforcement's big goal is that prosecution and conviction, although getting other information and bigger fish is a good thing. But we're probably going to get that anyway when it comes to interrogation in the intel world. We want more information, even if it's on things that are completely unrelated. If we have a guy and we know he's busted and going to jail, but he can give us some information on kind of the demographics of the area or how people think, we'll get that information because somebody wants that answer. So that's kind of how those differ. But our thing was, how do we get these guys talking? We need to find this information out because it's clearly has happened before. What can we do? Is it with this point, we decided to put them both together in a room. And we weren't sure what to do, so we figured we would leave them alone to talk instead of trying to work them against each other. It's not uncommon for people to think playing people off each other is a good idea, but it's really not. Here's why. One guy's scared to death of the other guy, so it's very likely he's not going to say or do anything. The other guy doesn't want to talk at all. So trying to play off each other is just either going to make us look weak or make it really obvious what we're doing. So instead, we came up with this story. We put them in the room, decided we were going to put them both in the room just to clear a couple things up. We posed a couple questions, minor things we're looking for, just kind of gave them the idea. Here's, here's what we're doing in the room today. We just need to clear a few things up because, granted, you're going to have to go through the judicial system. We're going to write up what we found, that it's very unlikely that you're involved in terrorist activities. You're probably just smuggling the weapons or selling them. They'll have to decide which one of you is guilty, which is the closest thing we came to playing them off each other. Um, but before we get going, we'll get you guys some food or some, whatever it is we did. And then we left the room because they're recorded, surveilled, audio and video 24 hours a day, even when the lights are off. And then we all just went back with our interpreters and watched and waited. And it only took about 20 minutes before they kind of started talking and whispering a little bit, even though we can hear them. And so it came down to the thing where the kind of poor guy said, look, I didn't say anything. You know, I didn't compromise you. I didn't tell him who you were. And the rich guy's like, that's good. Don't do that. The conversation evolved into, if you do that, I'll kill you. But if you do what I say, we'll take care of your family. Remember who I am. Things like this. And so it basically not only supported everything we thought, but it brought a bigger picture to it. That very clearly we had no question whatsoever. The poor guy was working for the rich man. The rich guy is at least a smuggler of weapons, but very likely involved in terrorism. And then at this time, we are a couple days into this, we had already given the rich guy's information off to other agencies and other areas in the military. Come to find out, he was one of the sons of a rich sheik who um, was in charge of those tribal lands. So through all that information and getting some assistance from analysts, we kind of had this figured out. Basically, we didn't know if the rich guy threatened the guy or promised him stuff. We figured he promised him a lot of stuff because he was poor until they went and got the weapons and then um, probably threatened him at that point. 
but we, we didn't quite have it all figured out. So we sat down and kind of brainstormed and I told him I have an idea. I'll take a shot at it. And this is where I got kind of lucky. Although it seemed logical to me, not everybody was on board, but we decided to try my idea because it seemed to be the best idea at the time. So I went into the room with the poor guy because we'd already split him back up at this point. And I went to a map and I said, look, here's the checkpoint going into these lands where you guys were arrested. And based on your story down here where your family is, um, you told us you went down there to pick up some stuff that this guy had squared away for you. Or maybe it was the other guy's family. I don't remember. So we know you were somewhere. You came down here. This is where you got the barrels. And you went up here. And this is where you got caught. We know that. And the guy's like, yeah, yeah, that's right. And I said, okay, here's what's going to happen right now. I'm going to tell you a story. I'm going to tell you what I think the truth is, what happened. And I want you to stop me when I get something wrong. And he says, okay, I can do that. I said, all right, for whatever reason, you live in these tribal lands where this guy is the son of this sheik. And for whatever reason, you agreed to help him. And at this point, his eyes wide open. I had his attention. I said, he's the son of this sheik. This is who he is. And this is the involvement he has supporting terrorism by smuggling weapons to help fight the coalition forces or what you just call the Americans. My guess is he made you a lot of promises and agreed to pay you money or take care of your family, do something that you needed. And he used your truck, which is where he took advantage of you because he has plenty of better vehicles of his own. But using your truck makes it look like this is all you. That's why he's over there saying you're the guy in charge. He's like, no, he isn't. We're like, oh yeah, he is. So you drove down to this area, which I think is probably his family's area, maybe not yours. On the property you went to, he had you do most of the work, digging a hole, digging this stuff up, maybe with a couple of local people, which is why your hands are exceptionally dirty and he's exceptionally clean today. Once you got that loaded in the truck, the reason you needed him there or he needed to be there was from where you were to where you're heading back for or where you're heading to was different lands. They belong to different people. And since he's the son of the sheik, people know who he is and that's how you got through those checkpoints and didn't get arrested. And at this point, he was uh, smoking, a lot of guys smoke, and he was kind of chain smoking, and he was kind of breathing heavily, and he was starting to get red in the face and sweat, and you could just see this escalate over time, his physical reaction. So we didn't really have like signs of deception, we had body language signs of anxiety, stress, and fear. So no matter how accurate I was, I hadn't screwed up enough for him to stop me, but I was definitely on the right track. I was like, so he gets you through all these checkpoints, and probably along the way, he went from promising you stuff to threatening you. If you say who he is, if you get caught and you do this, I'm sure he threatened you when you were detained at the checkpoint that you weren't expecting Americans to be at. That's probably why you're so scared. In fact, we have no doubt you've heard stories about us, whether they're good, bad, or indifferent, but you are more scared of that guy than you are being in the custody of the Americans. So we are positive you've been threatened by that guy. So now it's to the point where he's breathing heavily, like he's almost hyperventilating. And I can hear him and I keep looking at him. I'm like, man, this guy's in bad shape. He's really freaking out. So I tell him, unfortunately, because we know all this information, we have to report it. And because you're not talking to us, here's what's really going to happen in the judicial system. Is this guy, especially being a rich man's son, probably going to get off or not get in too much trouble whatsoever. But since you own the vehicle, you've admitted to going and get it and helping him. You're the one who admitted knowing what was in there. And we have that on recording. He hasn't said anything like that. You're admitting all these things. You don't have any money to help yourself in this situation. What's going to happen is you're going to go to jail and you're going to go to this prison, Buka prison for Sunnis, which is a really bad place. And that's where you're probably going to spend the rest of your days and never see your family again, all because this guy has you completely set up and you're done. 
So at this point, he's got so much anxiety and breathing problems, he's like falling off his chair. I thought he was going to have a stroke or a heart attack or something, maybe a seizure. So I said, look, there is a way out of this for you. And that's all I got to say. I was going to go into, you know, if you tell us this, that kind of thing, here's how you can help yourself. But all I had to say is there's a way out of this for you. And he goes, yes, yes, there is. And he just started talking. And he was so scared. We never thought this through enough to realize that he was so scared that maybe scaring him a little more with what could happen would work. That typically is not a good idea, at least early on, but it kind of worked out that way for us. And he told us everything we need to know. He not only just confirmed pretty much the majority of the story, he gave us the information, who the guy was, what had happened. And he really laid it all out in such a way that it was actually the only time I was in a situation where it was like the training environment where they just kind of give it to you when you ask the questions. And it went pretty quickly, and we had all the information. And then I don't remember what happened to him. I think he did go to jail for a short amount of time. The other guy did go to bad boy jail for quite a long time. This story, though, is to illustrate the difficulty in figuring out what's really happening when you're doing more than just talking to somebody. You're trying to figure out events that took place, what's happening, why this is happening, or just a situation where you're talking to two people that are talking to each other when you're not there or prior to, and you're trying to get the story straight and figuring out how to do it. And sometimes you can put them in the room together. You just need to be prepared on how to handle that. And trying to play them off each other in the same room isn't always a good idea. It's very easy to get caught. Playing them off separately in different rooms also has just about as much a success rate. So you look at those as more last case scenarios. The other thing is realizing who you're dealing with. Like the rich person in this situation saw himself as untouchable because that's what his life has been. Now that wasn't really the case for us, but it would have been very difficult for us to prove to him that he wasn't untouchable. And we'd have to do it by putting him through the system and letting the courts deal with it. It's nothing we probably could have proved there. That's why we focused on the little guy who was already scared and we tried calming him down. We learned from trying to calm him down in this very unique situation that actually wasn't working much, but we did get little bits of information and we came up with this theory. But when we gave him this theory, we unintentionally feared him up and scared him to the point that he had a physical reaction that was pretty funny at the time to where he turned around and gave us everything we wanted more than we realized. Now, of course, all this information has to be scrutinized and checked against each other, but it's a good story in the sense of talking about the interrogation subjects but like I said, while there are preferred ways to go about it, flies with honey, try not to overly scare a guy that's already scared. These types of situations there are unique situations where things work or in this situation, things that worked before that we tried on this guy kind of worked, but things that tend not to work are actually the ones that panned out for us. So this next story doesn't really have a whole lot to do with the gray man concept, but it's probably one of my more entertaining stories people like to hear. It does a good job of explaining what it's like dealing with senior military leaders or middle-level staffers, which to me are essentially the same level, and how good information, good intel, and even the answers to a big question get turned into some stupid situation where the good idea fairy comes out, and instead of focusing on the real mission and making something happen, they take their own idiotic beliefs and turn it into something stupid. So we had a situation somewhere in the Middle East where these uh, people had gone missing, American citizens. They were taken during an attack. We discovered they were missing, and we're not able to find them in the first few hours or few few days. Based on the organization that took them and things that were ongoing and that happened in the past, had they lived for more than a day or two or even longer, they would have been videotaped, put in a recording, and either killed on video or tortured, whatever would have happened, but none of that stuff turned up. So logically, we had every reason to believe that they had died uh, shortly after the attack or within the first day or two. 
which was unfortunate, but he didn't change the mission and we had to find them, in which we did eventually find them. But some months into this, we had talked to so many people. We were working together in a joint task force with CIA, DIA, FBI, and military intelligence, trying to work very specific targets. And while a lot of good came out of this, we were getting frustrated as we weren't getting anywhere. We weren't finding these guys. And one of the people we eventually brought back to the facility that we talked to, who had been in one of the prisons, we had learned through some other people he was probably a bigger deal than we thought in this organization. Turned out he was not just an imam, he was a Sharia judge. And he had no problem talking to us, he just wasn't going to tell us what we wanted. And he was a very smart and intelligent man. But we did find out a lot of information about how the Sharia system worked. And even though that was good intel, it was not what we wanted. And it became very frustrating. And we were talking to this guy hours and hours a day, all the time, bouncing around facilities. But when we found out he was a Sharia judge, we brought him back to the facility I was working in. So one of the days we were talking to him, we were just getting really frustrated. It was to the point that even the coolest heads in the room, I saw everybody was about to lose their minds. So I just happened to be in there. I wasn't even really taking part. I was just observing it. And I just stopped it and I made everybody leave because we were getting pretty pissed. And he made some smart ass comment. I don't remember what it was. I was the last guy walking out of the room. And it was the one time I lost control because I was just so upset. And I was like, yeah, but we knew we know the bodies were at your house. We know they were there. And he goes, yeah, they were, but only that night. So when I walked out, I was like, did you guys hear that? And they go, no. So we went back and played the tape. And they're like, oh, man, you got lucky. Because <laughs> if we wouldn't have got lucky, um, it could have made it worse for us. Because although we didn't think we could make the situation any worse, he was acting that way when we were leaving because he pretty much had won that day again. And I just lost it. But he had slipped up. So we reported that information. And it had been many months since this attack had happened. But since they'd been at his house, I was like, hey, I think, uh, you know, if, if this works that way, I'm not too knowledgeable on it. But if it does, I think we ought to get cadaver dogs out there. So the guys with the dogs are saying, yeah, it's very likely we could at least find something or they might get a hit that will prove the bodies were there. So as it turns out, when they showed up, there's this house, you know, it's a built house. And not that they're to the standards here in America, but there was a built structure and a family there. And they pulled the family out. Come to find out from talking to the family that the house only had basically the foundation and dirt at the time frame we were talking about. But they took the dogs in there and the dogs did get hit and they started digging up the ground on the floor and doing whatever forensic guys do. And that went on for a day or two and excavating and then doing testings and samples. And some days go by and I end up going to this briefing where I am the lowest man on the totem pole. A lot of people I didn't even know that were in agencies in the military that far outranked me. And during this briefing, the guy, the main guy in charge was a guy with a couple of stars on his shoulder that was an idiot at best. He was a low-level military general that nobody respected, wasn't a good leader by any means. And even though he had that stigma and reputation, I had met the man, you still got to figure these guys are in that job for a reason. They're going to have something smart to say at some point. So I didn't really care about that. I just listened to the briefing. And through the process of this briefing, and they're discussing everything they do and how they did it and what they found, they get near the end and they're like, you know, it got to the point where some of the substances they found, they were able to determine that there were bodies there and they actually were able to determine there was some blood in the soil. So the blood's in the soil or perhaps it was uh, in the concrete, like they poured the concrete over the body, something like that, but there was blood samples. They said, we can definitely tell it's human, but just do the time frame, the degradation, contamination. We can't tell you the blood type, let alone get DNA. That's just not going to happen at this point. It's been way too long. Now, they're the experts. I don't know anything about this stuff, so it sounded good to me. 
but at least gave us good information. So my brain's going a mile a minute. What can I do with this? Like we've confirmed the bodies were there. Bodies were there. Likely these bodies matches up with one of the three theories on where everybody went after this attack and actually narrows it down to one specific one, which we're all leading to, to be the situation and location where we'd find these soldiers, which in a few weeks later is exactly where we found them. So at this point when they say we can't, my God, I can't even, can't believe this happened, but we said we can't identify the blood type or DNA. This general stops them. And this guy is like, you know, I'm like everybody else, which of course he's not. He says, I like to relax every night and watch movies and talk to my wife like every other soldier. And he says, you know, right now I'm on uh, whatever show he's watching. He's like, I'm on season two of CSI. And after watching two seasons of that show, you can't convince me that there's no way you can determine the blood type or the DNA. Two things happened at that point. First, for me, if there was ever any doubt, this guy was an idiot. I was settled with that problem right there. Second was every person in the room, jaws hit the floor and they just turned and looked at this guy like, what did he say? Like people are mouthing words. What the fuck to each other? <laughs> what just happened? So instead of taking this information, coming up with a plan and figuring out what we're going to do, he's like, I want everybody in the room to go with me. We're going down to your office. And I didn't go. A lot of people didn't go, but some people did and come to find out. He spent like three days down there canceling meetings, trying to understand why this wasn't working trying to do things military guys do like I'm giving you an order they didn't work for him he had no control over him but it's like you were going to find me this and they're trying to explain to him it's not actually possible and then nothing happened with that information it was a good week later before we got any feedback on all that information we just continued on with interrogations trying to find what was going on so from there it gets better so we had a guy in there a couple guys in there you know of course they want to talk to the boss they want to talk to generals or whatever and it's a horrible idea, but somebody tells somebody and uh, they're like, yeah, we think this is a good idea. So they invite this general down there to talk to detainees, which is a huge problem. It can not only make the situation worse because we're getting to places and there's all these issues of legal considerations and paperwork and briefing he has to get that people like he's a general. He doesn't need that. And I'm like, I, I don't care who he is. That's the law. That's going to happen. So I tried to fight this and of course it didn't work out. He was coming. So on the day he showed up, I, I was in the military at this point. Nobody was there from my unit, which should have been. It was just me. And this one lieutenant did show up who was kind of an idiot. But this guy's there. He's got his staff, his little entourage of people, his little way too hot of a captain that's his personal assistant, and then his legal advisor, his JAG lawyer, which is a colonel. So I introduced myself. He already knew who I was. And I said, look, before this begins, he's like, well, I'm ready for it to go right now. I'm like, well, that's not going to happen. So the bottom line is... You need to understand that legally for you to walk into that room, you have to sign these papers and get a brief from me. And every single person that was there, including his entourage behind him, are giving him the like hand across the throat, like stop it. And I just looked at them and waved him off. And the JAG lawyer's like, no, he's right, sir. You'll need to sign this. And he sat down, looked at the documents, said this is legit. I gave him his briefing. And then while we took him in and had him talking to people when I wasn't in there, all these people and officers are coming to me like telling me basically I'm an idiot and I'm just blowing him off because... They legally had no authority there. I was handling it nicely. I just couldn't deal with that crap. So anyway, he didn't make the situation worse. He went in and talked to these guys. Nothing happened. But when he came out, he asked me this question that I thought was very important. I think he needed to understand the truth. He said, I need to know what's going to happen to find these soldiers. And I said, sir, I get your point of view as a military officer. But you need to understand that we're doing everything we can. People have been working on this for months. We're doing all these things. We've got a lot of great intel at it, but we need to find these bodies. I understand that. 
you know, we do want them to be alive, but I think at this point we're way past that being real. So he says, okay, what's it going to take? And I said, look, we've discovered a lot of people in the system in jail that actually were using fake names. Like we've got some of the key players with the attack. We've got them reconvicted. I mean, we have everything I think we need to find that answer. There's been as much or more time and energy put into this in some of the biggest cases that had happened in the previous decade since 9-11. But it's not going to get us what we want. I said, at the end of the day, this is going to go down like a lot of situations with missing people before. No matter what we do, no matter how much it's not going to work, we're never going to stop trying until this is over. That being said, here's what's most likely going to happen. Just like all these people that come in every day and tell us intel or say, you know, where these bodies are and they're wrong. One day somebody's going to come in and say they know where the bodies are. And like every single time you're going to send out a special forces team to go look for that body. And one day they're going to be right and they're going to find it. And he goes, right. I don't want to hear that. That's the wrong answer. I'm giving you an order. You will find me this answer. And I said, yes, sir. Even though I wanted to say that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And then a few weeks later, we did find him and it went down exactly like we had all kind of guessed that one of the times somebody came in and said, I know where this guy is, where these bodies are. They happened to be right. And then the whole situation was over. So while this doesn't have much to do with the gray man concept, it does illustrate part of the life and maybe even some current events or things you follow or have seen in the news that involves intelligence will help you understand that when it comes from the collector up to the executive level decision maker, there's a lot of people in the middle and some of them have too much power or think they're smarter than they are and they refocus energies in different areas and they do things that screw stuff up, cause problems and really make it difficult to do the job and get the information that we need. A simple example right now is in the news, they're talking about intelligence agencies reporting to the president that the Chinese lies to us about the COVID virus. Okay, that may be very well true, but you can also find information that says we were tracking and following some of this info and possibilities of it for months, if not years, but definitely for months and weeks for this specific situation. Then you got to wonder, why does it take so long to get to the president? Well, that's because there's a lot of people in the middle. And despite what they came out and said, that's not going to be everything that's in those reports. They're picking and choosing what they want to tell because they're politicians as part of the game. So even if everything they're telling you is true, it's not the 100% truth by any means. The other thing is, too, we don't really know what happened with the real information. And maybe one day I'll know that story from people I know they're still working in the field that can tell me and that'll end up on a podcast. But until then, I can only tell you that a lot of that information was known and the only reason it's taken this long, which is way too long for that information to get up there that they chose to put out, is because of all the mid-level guys and what happens to that information. And the thing is, if there's people in there that want a story to be told, that's the story they're going to push for. And no matter what you think or believe, and maybe all that is true and really what happened, I would find it more likely, based on my own experience, to find out one or more people in the middle said, I want you to find intel and give me information that says the Chinese are evil and that they did this on purpose. And then even if somebody doesn't come up with that assessment and situation, no matter what they come up with, it gets edited, twisted, and turned into that to make it a story that isn't necessarily true because that's what somebody wants. And somebody could be anybody. I'm not saying that is a euphemism for a specific person. That's important for one reason that I guess we could tie into the gray man concept is when you're talking to somebody, especially when they think they're more powerful than they are, they're in a position of authority or subject matter expert or leadership, whoever they are, what are their biases? What are they really trying to do? Are they flat telling you there's a story they're looking for and things they want to have happen? Because that's common in the military and in government service. Figure out what are these people's biases, even if you have yours under control, and try to figure out what they have done or will do to information that they're getting or you're giving them or you're getting from them to scrutinize it with their bias. It's very possible 
that with enough thought and reflection, you could actually undo the information applying their bias that they had to it if you can identify it and maybe come closer to what the real information is. This is part of assessing and analyzing information. Sure, guys collected it, it's been assessed, analyzed, given a best case storyline of what the assessment is, and then somebody turns it into something they want, and that's the information you get. What do you do with that? Can you undo it to figure out what the original information was? That's kind of what you have to do with the news these days, so that's kind of how this kind of played out. I know this isn't a whole lot of stories. I could very easily go much longer, but I'm trying to keep my episodes at 30 to 45 minutes. I know some people would listen to them as longer, but some people won't. So I want to make sure that I have material there you want to hear. Um, I will tell more stories in the future as we discuss more things. In upcoming episodes, we're going to get more some technical skills like live drops, dead drops, security, uh, stuff you can do with your computer, things you can do in everyday life, as well as some tradecraft skills, little tips and tricks you can use that people have used that might be just entertainment to you or something you can try out at home. I do want to take this opportunity to thank the listeners. We have several from around the world, even though it's probably only onesies and twosies. We have people to listen to this podcast in India, Sri Lanka, Netherlands, Canada, Germany, the UK, Belgium, Australia, and of course the United States. And for all of you around the world, no matter when you hear of this at the time of the recording, if you're stuck at home, you're sick, somebody else is sick, you're dealing with the isolation, perhaps a forced quarantine, wherever you're at, it has to do with the coronavirus, COVID-19, we do hope that you are staying safe, being smart. And you're able to get by and have everything you need and have that support system or able to find it. Don't forget to check the show notes near the bottom. We have a link for another podcast you can listen to that does have a recent release on COVID-19 as well as current events in the economy. Even if you're not from this country, some of that information will pertain to you and give you some ideas about how markets are fluctuating, what's going on in world governments and what's going on with this virus and how it might affect you where you're at at home. If you enjoy this show, please share it to people you think will also enjoy it. Give it a like, thumbs up, or heart on whatever platform you're watching. If you're new to the show and you're listening to it on Anchor FM, just below the icon that shows the gray man symbol, you'll see several little icons for the different platforms. There's seven total platforms that this is currently broadcast on, so if you have a podcast platform you prefer to use, you may find us there. Thank you for listening, and we look forward to giving you another show in a few days right here on Gray Man, Hiding in Plain Sight.